It's been a couple of weeks since we've spoken with uh, Malcolm Honline, and a lot has gone on, to say the least. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Fridays, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time here at JM in the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. I missed you last week, but... um... Yeah, and what a week it was. Uh, Last week we were uh, on the air as the news continued to filter in about the largest civilian tragedy in the history of the state of Israel. In light of what happened in Mehron one week ago, what are your thoughts? I mean, it's so uh, impactful. It's hard to to even, uh, with the passage of a week and the courageous words of many of the families of those who lost children, I mean, incredibly uh, strong demonstrations of Amuna Bitochen and and the outreach on their part, but the... um, traumatic impact, not only on, on all the people who were there, but everybody who saw it, the fact that thousands lined up in Tel Aviv, in secular Tel Aviv, to give blood for members of the Haredi community, largely, um, I think belies those who seek to divide, that when it comes to the bottom line, we are one people, the people mourned this from across the political spectrum and across the religious spectrum. And it's a shame that it takes this to, to remind us of the importance of, of uh, Achdus. And then, of course, there are a lot of questions about how it happened and what happened, and there are a lot of still, there's still a lot of speculation about it. But clearly it was, um, uh, there is a, a lot of planning for future that will have to take place if they're to replicate it in, the, in years to come. Uh, yeah, lots to think about, no doubt, in the aftermath of this terrible episode. And, of course, Jewish unity, as you just pointed out, Jewish brotherhood and sisterhood, the bottom line, as you just said, of what it is to be a member of the Jewish faith certainly uh, had its opportunity to shine, one of the only silver linings, if you will, to an immense tragedy like this. Um a lot of thoughts, a lot of things to keep in mind. I know this is of no comfort to any family that is now suffering. Believe you me, I get that. But but when you look at the uh, at the history of these types of stampedes, these types of accidents, we don't want to. Well, obviously, this wasn't purposeful. These types of accidents that happen. I mean, there have been episodes in, uh, on this globe where thousands of people have died in episodes like this. Again, no comfort to the families, I understand that, but we have to understand that this tragedy could have been even much worse than it was. And there was great acts of heroism by young guys, even putting their own lives on the line, as two did to protect the child, and they did for a long time, and then they were found, all three uh, underneath together, holding on to each other. The two guys who stood over a nine-year-old so that they could withstand the crush and unfortunately didn't uh, save them. Yeah. So that's an important lesson that we have to uh, remember, to say the least, about uh, the magnitude of this and how much worse it could have been. And, you know, there, I, 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 one of the initial reactions among some of the commentators was that this is going to have a big effect on the formation of a government in Israel. Now, I know that, you know, I, I, I'm not making this a political discussion, but but is there any accuracy to that? Is Can this can this one episode really swing things during the, the uh, government-forming process? People 
try to because it comes at a very heated time with the government formation process underway so that they dumped on Netanyahu as, uh, as in, in additional ways. And in that way, regard, I do think it probably had it, it had no impact on the negotiations and had no impact on the vote because the vote took place and people have expressed themselves. But it added to the climate, um, you know, where people are frustrated for so many weeks. There's no government that has been formed and not sure their coalition can be made right now. It looks like Lapid and, and Bennett and may be able to cobble it together, although there are others who, who think that we'll go to the, Israel will go to a fifth election, uh, which would not be uh, the best outcome, I think, at this time, but um, but may be necessary. So the um, it just it adds to the uh, climate, overall climate. Um, there'll be plenty of blame to go around. I think you alluded to that already. There'll be plenty of blame to go around once all the investigations are done. Etc. Uh, but what do you make of, and I'm sure you knew this before this tragedy even occurred, what do you make of all the reports that we're hearing and the uh, journalists who in the past and government officials who in the past have warned about all this? I mean, is there, do we have to examine our uh, air of cooperation um, that uh, that people, especially when gathering with hundreds of thousands of people, have with government and others who are trying to, or hopefully trying, certainly exposing, but maybe also trying to secure a, a, a possibly dangerous place? Certainly something that's going to have to be looked at. The, you know, the, one of the police chiefs uh, local took responsibility, but he said that's not blame, just that we should have been more prepared or had more people there. But there are others who say that somebody had a heart attack and then they sealed off the area to get help to him. And mm. all of these things contribute. So until there's a full investigation, people shouldn't speculate. There's nothing to be gained. It doesn't bring back anybody. We should learn from it. Mm. We have to also... I think everybody was there and everybody who saw what happened, that in the future, take seriously that, that putting 100,000 people into a location like that could, in, 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 in different eventualities, it, I mean, there are a million different things that could happen. So it doesn't mean you don't hold events. It's like a football stadium and many things could happen. And it doesn't mean you don't hold the event, but you have to really take the precautions and do the proper training so that people know how to um, leave it, uh, uh, if God forbid there's an incident. Um, but there also has to be a facility for it. And here it seems that some doors were closed or the passage was very narrow. So we have to learn much more. But I think recriminations is not appropriate at this time. I think you got to let people finish the shiva, come to terms with what occurred, help others who are in trauma and who are impacted by it, help the families that uh, left so many Yosomim, so many orphans behind. Uh, and then the, with time, we will see the examination. I'm sure there will be very thorough investigations. There's too much public demand for it not yeah. to be. Uh, once in a while, I turn to you for philosophical observations. How do you... Uh... How do you account for the strength that some of the people who are now involved in this uh, state of mourning have displayed? I mean, I, I've checked in with a couple of families that I'm somewhat familiar with who are unfortunately in, now in a period of shiva. And it, it is remarkable to hear about the strength that the spouses of those who passed away, that the children of those who passed away, at least in the cases that I spoke to uh, different people, it is amazing um, how strong they are, and the messages, as you described, that they are 
transmitting now to the entire world. How do you explain how they're able to deal with this? Uh, honestly, I don't know. Uh, you know, just as you can't question why sometimes things happen, you can question who's responsible, you, how you prevent it, you can do a lot of things. But, you know, the one of the mothers said when somebody came and he said, you know, he died too young, she said, no, this is the years that Kodesh Baruch Hu gave him. He fulfilled those years, he lived them well. I don't know where anybody gets that strength, and that um, that that is something that we can all aspire to, uh, hopefully for positive ends and in positive conditions. But people are superhuman, and and it's not people go with a cape and fly in the air. It's people, regular human beings, who manifest that kind of of strength and have to live for the future for their families. And we have to make sure that it's it's all possible for them. Uh, and you know we see it from time to time. People are tested during the show. Look how many superheroes there were. Yeah. Even so, that many people didn't even talk about what they did or, or write about it until seventy years later. We learn about some of these amazing acts, and now we learn about things that happened even during the during that ter- tragic event. These acts of heroism. Values of faith are very valuable. Wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Yeah. Pretty and at amazing. a time when people, there are too many who want to cancel the values and cancel the 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 history and the recognition and the lessons, and it's very important. Uh, this 19-year-old boy was buried yesterday, not from uh, Mayron, but from this terrorist attack that took place shortly after the Mayron episode. It all, it always seems, and maybe it's just that every one of them is so special and has this. Uh, uh, incredible story behind them, but it always seems that the enemy takes the greatest from among us, even at the age of 19. Um, a, a pretty remarkable reaction to his passing, and um, and it just doesn't it always seem like the the best. The best always seem to be uh, um, um, hunted by the enemy, so to speak. It seems certainly seems so, but the truth is that that uh, we are remarkable people and have the high quotient of remarkable young people. Um, you know, I should mention also, you know, Rabbi Hamra, who was the chief rabbi right. in Syria, passed away right. uh, last night in alone. Uh, rabbi Abraham Hamra, with whom I worked very closely on the rescue of Syrian Jews. I was another hero right. who, who, you know, wasn't acknowledged. And by the way, there was a, a terrorist attack this morning right. in the, at one of the crossings and uh, at the Salem checkpoint. And Baruch Hashem, again, heroes who, who went out and counterattacked and killed two of the terrorists and the third wounded. And thank God, in this case, nobody, none of the soldiers were hurt. Right. But there are heroes every day. We just don't pay attention to them. Yeah, well, they were targeting Israeli soldiers. And yes, they seem all to be remarkable, the young among us uh, who are on the front lines, especially in Israel. Uh, it's getting scary what's going on in the eastern part of Yerushalayim, and I'm sure you saw the videos. Uh, I've been watching them this morning. I mean, they, these are pretty serious attacks, and uh, I, I hope this doesn't turn into full-blown riots. Well, it's not just there. It's, it, it, it comes within the context of a heated-up situation because of the Palestinian election, because they're trying to divert attention from the cancellation, which had nothing to do with Israel and nothing to do with voting in, in Jerusalem. Uh, Israel never stated they wouldn't allow it. In the past, they allowed them to vote at, at post offices. But uh, people should note that, that Abbas scheduled the election for Shabbos. Israeli post offices are closed Shabbos. <laughs> 
you know, some again the press won't won't acknowledge, and he did it, um, and, and had nothing to do with that. That was just the cover, and then he in, tries to incite violence, and certainly uh, Hamas is doing it because they're trying to pitch their position uh, in the in Yudin uh, Shomron and in East Yerushalayim. So the, it's an elevated level, the demonstrations that took place and whether the police acted strongly enough or whether it was smart to close the Damascus aid or not. Again, stuff that, that is being discussed and will be looked at. But the uh, events in Sheikh Jarrah, which are the immediate uh, source of some of the escalation, I mean, this is something that's been through the courts, that this is Jewish-owned uh, properties, which Palestinians are living and in which Arabs are living, um, and don't want to leave, but I, but people again don't know that they were offered to be able to stay there for the rest of their lives, and then only after they die would the the full properties be taken back by the rightful owners who are Jewish, and you know this this was an ordered eviction after many years of of the discussion and you know the supreme court in israel is pretty tough on these situations and came down and ruled in favor of the jews because it's a legitimate claim and yet the media is portraying it as this this is just some kind of wild jews taking over a property and evicting the the arab residents it's not the case and and you know they don't care the arab leadership doesn't seem to care about who dies as a result because it serves their political purposes and as has been true for too often they sacrifice the needs of their own people because it suits uh, some immediate uh, goal um so i mean until first of all is there a new date for pa elections or they're no. postponed indefinitely no and There's no date, and it's postponed, and we don't know yet what it will be postponed to. I mean, they'll say, well, it had to do with these, the Jerusalem. It didn't. It looked like Hamas could well have won. The PA side is very divided. You have El-Kidwe and Bergudi and Dachlan uh, um, dividing the vote, and uh, Abbas looked at it and saw that, that he could well be history, and, and Hamas might actually become the major party. And you can see the incitement, especially on TikTok, by, by Abbas, um, as, as those who are skeptical about what, what the tactics they use, um, that they, um, so there's no new date set. And, um, I mean, I see that Ben Greer is opening an office already in, in Sheikh Jarrah, and, uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, is, is there a potential for this thing to come to an end before it boils over? Look, you're coming to the end of Ramadan. This is always a period of heated action. People fast all day, and then, and they're easily incitable because everybody, you know, then breaks the fast, and they watch television, and, and as I said, they're using the Internet uh, to, to incite people, so... This is, um, you know, it becomes a flashpoint for for people to rally. Uh, if you look at the actual uh, pictures of the uh, films of the confrontations, they were more, much more restrained than than you would get the image. Um, but they can escalate immediately, and especially on Fridays, Fridays of uh, prayer Fridays, and this is a big one before the uh, end of. Um, of Ramadan, which all of us know because it coincides with Rosh Chodesh. Right. So I, I usually know before my Muslim friends when <laughs> Ramadan will be because we yeah, um, next Rosh Chodesh. Year, next year it's Nissan, yeah, but it can change. It can change, and it, it yeah, it varies every year.
Well, one uh, second. I thought it's a month earlier every year. Is it ER, the Nissan next year, etc.? It moves a month, right. right. I don't know what they do with Adar Aleph and Adar Bet, but I don't know. That's a good question, actually. Um, I'll have to ask my Muslim friends. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NalchemSegal.com and the NalchemSegal Network, and, of course, the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Does, th- does this case go back for appeal to the court, or it's over with, this final decision on the on the housing, on the uh, buildings? I think there is still something in the courts uh, going on, but, but the decision uh, to let them uh, move in was made. Right. I think, as I think, there is still one aspect that before the courts yet. Some inter- and I'm sure it gets appealed and appealed and appealed uh, in different ways. Well, that's what I'm wondering. Are we at the start of a three, four-year process here? No, or? no, no, I don't think so. Um, I mean, I'm not an expert on the legal processes of Israel, and I can never figure out the court's ruling sometimes, but um, and I don't think so. Uh, a lot of interesting things this week regarding the formation of the government. Before Netanyahu was uh, was stripped of his um, capability, if you will, or permission to to form a government, and it went over to Lapid, he did offer a Naftali Bennett prime ministership. Now, this was a little unusual because it seemed like he was offering him prime minister without the ability to offer him prime minister. What was that all about? Well, he could offer him because... Um, uh, you know, if he if he got Bennett, then he could put together probably a coalition together with the Orthodox parties and some of the others uh, who might come in. But the numbers still didn't seem to add up. Mm-hmm. And Bennett, like others who used to work for Netanyahu, uh, all vowed that they would not come into government led by him. I think what was interesting is Netanyahu, I think, offered him to be the first in the rotation right. of uh, the prime Sh- ministership. Showing just how desperate Netanyahu is. Uh, exactly, and that uh, I think he saw the handwriting of the wall that he was not able to pull it together. Look, it's still not over. Uh, I think that the chances for a new election are, are significant, uh, but the president turned to Lapid and gave him the mandate to try and form a government. He's offering Bennett also the first in rotation. He wants a national unity government. Uh, it might have to include some very disparate elements. I don't know if the, uh, some of the religious parties, or UTJ, said they would not join that kind of a government. Um, but I think that others, uh, th- there are the numbers there. But the question is, do you count Ram in the Knesset as a supporting group to get to 61? Can they uh, really have Lieberman and religious parties together, given all the hostilities demonstrated? Uh, there are many questions about, uh, and you know, who would really lead? I mean, I think it's it's a formula for uh, ultimate the dissension and division, divisiveness in in that kind of a government. But if you remember, Shamir and Perez uh, yeah. co-led a government, so it has happened. I didn't realize Lapid offered Bennett the first go-around as prime minister. That's what they reported. But what what is the likelihood of him forming a government? I mean, I, you know, you don't have to give me a number, but, what, I mean, is it likely that he leaves this process having formed a government or not? It is possible, I would say, rather than likely. And that means, if it's only possible and not likely, that what you just said earlier in this conversation will likely come to fruition, because aside from the two of them, Netanyahu and Lapid, I assume no one else will be, will be given the opportunity, and then they go back to another election. No, first it goes to the Knesset. Mm. And if anybody in the Knesset who can put together 61 votes, anybody, then becomes prime minister. Is that possible? That that would happen with an underdog? 
right now, no. But, you know, people don't really have the stomach for another election. Neither the people nor the politicians. And, you know, you never know in politics. It makes for strange bedfellows, as they say. And we don't know what, what it will lead to. You know, on paper, it's doable. <laughs> on paper, I could find you natural partners that can get you to 61 if it goes back to the Knesset. And people want a ministry and the people get rhymed, you know, with all sorts of goodies if they go on one side or the other. And you can always have defections. You know, it could be that members of Likud decide to to form a government without Netanyahu. There you would get a a quick majority. I think uh, um, both Saar and Bennett and others would go into that kind of a government. I don't know who who exactly would lead it, Um, but you know, there are many possible formulations. You know, it's funny. Two weeks ago, it, when we were speaking, it seemed like Saar was the uh, was the dark horse to be the, the 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 big victor here in this whole process. And now, and now he's added a whole thing. I mean, obviously, because Netanyahu can't negotiate anymore. But it's just amazing. Two weeks later, how much how many, how much things have changed over there. And by the way, I'll tell you another thing that that changed regarding in the last two weeks. We all assumed that there would be an extension of Netanyahu's possibility of forming a government. We were talking about Shavuos, if you recall. And even that was was negated by the president of Israel. So, no, well, first of all, Netanyahu gave it back and said, I can't form a government. So it wasn't just the president's decision. It was Bibi's recognition of the reality that he, he tried every formula possible. It didn't work. It wasn't going to work. Wow. And so, you know, this was the, the deadline. There one would have been an extension if he was at sixty and you know needed to find one more vote to to get it, but otherwise the deadline was set. Wow, I didn't realize that. And President Rivlin said from the start, "I'm not going to give an extension, and I'm not going to shop it around. I'm going to give one more an opportunity, and then give it to the Knesset." Right, he wanted a a realistic formation of the government. I guess Netanyahu couldn't prove that, which means... and he, as you know, does not have much love for Netanyahu, so mm-hmm. he was pushing other their parties to see if they could come together. wonder if he regrets not taking the uh, President of Israel deal, the Prime Minister. There was no deal. That, that was speculation. They're they, they not in a position to offer that deal. Uh, the press made that, it sound like it was a deal. I know. I said <laughs> that, that it still was speculative. As, was, as Malcolm Holmline would say, don't believe everything you read. Yeah, or, or see. Right. Yeah, the Internet's responsible for that now, I'll tell you that much. It's amazing what uh, how many mixed messages are being transmitted. Speaking of mixed messages, Mr. Honline, uh, I might argue that the government of Israel is sending mixed messages regarding travel to Israel. Uh, do you, Can you make sense of anything that's been announced in the last week about uh, Americans traveling to Israel? Because it looks like the trip that we were... That we were on is going to be postponed only because we can't get, or or the people in charge can't get definitive information uh, regarding what the state of Israel wants in order to accept travelers. Yes. So the answer is yes. It's totally confusing, <laughs> and and announcements are made but not clear. And I feel terrible for the guys at the consulate who are being beaten up, and they are working all the time to get people in, especially those who have special needs. And, you know, we 
many people called and are calling us, they call everybody, all we can do is pass it on. We're not in a position to issue visas or to get past the apostles or, or uh, you know, that people need on their birth yeah, certificates. Apostles, just to be... Apostles, right. no, no apostles. No, the apostles <laughs> couldn't get in either today. But, uh, but the, the uh, apostles, people don't know, but it's a special uh, stamp that you get to get to authorize like a birth certificate and stuff that are needed. But more than that, there was also fraud. And that has, you know, set back the process now. There were several, you know, waves of it where people were getting student visas because students were allowed to go back. So people were taking advantage of it and getting fake documents. And and people that now barred for for coming to Israel for five years if they're caught doing that. Uh, so that added another layer of complication onto it. But it's it you know it's concern about um, which countries they can allow people in, how, how many tests. I know people who are going, and you have to test right before you go, and then three days after you get there, and uh, even if you're vaccinated. And the um, uh, so priority is given to emergency cases, and especially where lone soldiers, families, or where elderly parents, uh, let alone, with God forbid, there's something um, more pressing. And uh, many people are going. The planes are flying full. Many businessmen, others who who have to go back and forth, are given exemptions. But there will be for groups and individual tours, not likely till July. And I'm just preparing people that I'm not sure that for Sukkot, children will be able to get in if they're not vaccinated. Wow. And that would obviously change families' plans. Wow. It's certainly in mine, but uh, it has and put everything on hold till we know. I mean, again, things can change very rapidly. Um, and there, was, there was a tweet this week. And by the way, I have to make this clear that this was not a tweet from the Israeli government, but it looks like they're quoting an Israeli report. It says, here are the 14 countries that Israel is opening its borders to. And, of course, the U.S. is on the list. And it says this is for vaccinated tourist groups starting May 23rd. But based right. on... But based on what we're we're saying in this conversation, it's just not it's just not true that they you know we th- no that is the that is the threshold that May twenty third groups uh, organized groups because then they have you know somebody to hold to account and make sure that they enforce the the rules. They saying that they starting May twenty third. It doesn't mean people are going to be start going then, but that's when the the um, rules right. are supposed to go into effect. So the there's qu- still clarity, right. a lack of clarity about a lot of the rules. So the question in our case is, and this is why you know there's such a question mark hanging over it, is that you know are we ready to rely? On, mm-hmm. on this report, because, right. you know, it's ever-changing. So that's really what it comes down to. Are people ready to, our groups, you know, especially when you're responsible for others, are they ready to rely on this, that the 23rd really is going to uh, kick in uh, the, uh, the the rule that people in a group could travel uh, to Israel? Uh, one of the things that I, I think um, it would be safe to say some people feared when uh, Joe Biden became president is that uh, the nuclear talks with Iran... Would in fact uh, end in an agreement rather quickly, and now with relative silence out there, and that could be the media's fault regarding what's going on between the U.S. and Iran, it does look like, at least according to this New York Times report, that we are weeks away from an official deal with the Iranians. What's the story there? 
it's very hard to tell what the story is. I talk to people in Iran. I talk to people who are close to the negotiations. Uh, I think people are being tight-lipped. There's a lot of speculation. A lot of this is not actual comments. Uh, a lot of it might be deliberate to keep people off guard and to diminish the opposition or to uh, allay fears. The fact is that we just, I, I, we don't know exactly. We know that the Iranians want a deal, that the Biden administration certainly wants a deal. The Europeans won't want a deal. The question is, can they come to the terms with it? What will be released? Will they release billions of dollars? Will they, I think the speculation that the $7 billion were about to be released was not true, uh, that the deal of a prisoner exchange so far does not appear to be true. Um, you, you have to take each aspect of this because, for one, Iran is continuing to escalate its violence. We see it in, in uh, with Hamas and Hezbollah. We see it in the Houthis. We see it against Iran and against Iran against some of the other countries. But at the same time, Saudi Arabia is now talking to Iran. We drove them to, to it. I think it's a, a concern about American disengagement, about you know what they see as the facts on the ground with um, and and uncertainty about the future. You see, Egypt just bought forty fighter jets from France. Um, a deal that might have gone to the United States. Mm. I, there are a, a lot of attendant things that, I mean, we could spend the day talking about all of the developments in the region right now. Um, and the changes in, in, for instance, you know, Iran is now, because of Israel's success in blocking the shipments or hitting the shipments that get to Syria, and they did again this week. And in fact, I think they, they the chemical plant near Qum might have been hit, and, uh, they, and it shows that there are chemical warfare uh, efforts are, are still underway in Syria, but Iran's uh, infrastructure there has been hit repeatedly thousands of times. So now they're shipping it, and Russia, Russian ships now are accompanying them when they get to Syria, protecting them to come in and unload. So Israel either has to hit them when they unload, or hit them on the ships. There was an attack on a ship, an Iranian ship, uh, off the coast of Syria. Uh, I'm giving you examples mm -hmm. of various escalations that mm -hmm. are taking place now, and and the border in the north, of course, is hotter. And you know they've built tunnels. They're now doing much more with drones. They've got more advanced with drones in the south. They're sending balloons again, which have set fires. And because of the hot weather, you know it carries the balloons in the direction they want and um, uh, across the border. And all I have to do is get across the border, and they set fire. And they have IEDs, explosive devices attached to them. So Iran is continuing all of its its uh, aggressive and negative actions, uh, and yet we're sitting there talking to them and trying to negotiate when we find out all the time how much they've lied about the steps they supposedly took, pouring cement into the into the reactors, and they did not, that they have the more advanced centrifuges that they're still enriching, and they're saying that they're willing to reduce the enrichment from 60% to 20% instead of the 3.5% that they're entitled to. And, you know, and of course the stockpiles. So I think there's a lot of speculation. There isn't uh, direct talks yet between, officially, between U.S. and Iran. It's all going through third parties and with the P5 plus one. Um, I, I, you see that, that France is taking a harder line on the Islamists, and, and that includes about Iran, and there's, you know, anger about Iran's um, nefarious activities in, and in Europe and elsewhere, where they're inciting people uh, all the time to, to violence and to, to extremism. Um, and the biggest story, of course, was Arif's tape when we were off the foreign minister 
uh, tape of his three-hour interview, or it might have been seven-hour interview, that was released, which included attacks on Soleimani, the revered figure, but also on the IRGC and saying they interfere with the diplomacy and that the Russians uh, worked with them to try to kill the deal they negotiated, the original uh, JCPOA uh, deal. But the tape itself, uh, nobody's sure whether it was deliberately leaked because he wants to run for the presidency, so he carves himself as being, you know, to the to the more reform side, which is all relative. Nobody's really a reformer. They're all hardliners. It's just a question of who's more hardline. But uh, others say that it was leaked to kill his chances uh, of being a candidate. Uh, the election will be in four weeks, I think, less than four weeks, and already number quite a number of candidates have been put forward. And Zarif was uh, nominated by the Al-Anabiya camp, the construction camp, which is not a construction company, but the name of the political party. He's one of three or four that they put forward. I wonder. So it comes in the context of their domestic uh, elections, about their positions in in the in the region right now, and. Uh, the desire for people to show progress. This was an administration priority. They said it from the, the get-go. And the question is, what terms will they will they ex- uh, exact for it? Are there still anti-government protesters in Iran? Because the reason all I... All the time. The reason I ask... And they get no coverage. Absolutely good question. The reason They're I all ask, the time. The reason I ask is I wonder if a deal, if it is imminent, like the New York Times is reporting, who knows if they're right, if it is imminent, I wonder if that would strengthen them or weaken them in their pre- it, it devastates them. They they don't want a deal. They want this government overthrown, and they you know they've taken themselves you know to put themselves in very dangerous situations. But they are making them, their voices heard, and young people and others. And it has had an, an impact. But the um, and they are not looking for another standout deal because if, if billions of dollars come to Iran, it doesn't go to the people. Forty percent of the economy is controlled by the IRGC, Iran Revolutionary Guard, and the Supreme Leader's House. So nothing comes to them. It's only going to be used to to enforce the to reinforce the military, the IRGC's goal, and and that includes uh, going after Israel. Uh, the the people themselves. Don't have any confidence in the in the regime. Wow, unbelievable! Finally, it is the uh, let me just make sure I have the right name. It is the Human Rights Watch, the latest watchdog to accuse Israel of perpetuating a version of the racist legal system known as apartheid. And I'm sure you saw the whole uh, Tlaib uh, uh, tweet, which I don't think she, even though the the story was retracted about the uh, is settlers burning Palestinian land, I don't think she retracted the tweet yet, unless I missed it. Um, what can you tell us about the latest effort to call Israel an apartheid state? Well, it's part of a campaign, and you see it, whether it's in conditioning aid, whether it's in other efforts that uh, are going on. And, and the um, unfortunately, sometimes from within our own community, people want to ward down, water down the definition of IRA when finally 30 countries adopt the definition of anti-Semitism. So with examples, and then they want the examples about Israel removed. I mean, it's, it's, that is the most disturbing part of it when, when it comes from within. Uh, and they're mostly extremist elements in the community. Uh, uh, or outside of the community, but the the um, um, it is it is true that the uh, you know the the efforts are uh, underway to whittle away mm. at the aid to Israel, mm-hmm. and they're using this now. Human Rights Watch has a long history of being hostile to Israel, 
a long history. What they do is they put out this report annually, but this year they went even further in attacking Israel and attacking Israel's legitimacy and calling it an apartheid state. And Chief Rabbi uh, of uh, South Africa wrote a, a blistering piece saying, you know, you diminish it. You can't just hijack the word apartheid. Is there a systemic system? Is there? And, and you go through the real statistics about, about uh, Arabs and Israel, et cetera, and you'd see that it's, uh, it's, a, it's an insult to the anti-apartheid movement and to the sacrifices that were made. But it's a, there's a long history of this, and people who dismiss some of these incidents don't understand that this is all erosionary. It may look like a little bit, but when you put all these little bits together, you see how the ideas of conditioning aid you know, started with five or six people, but it becomes more current where they're saying, well, we don't want to condition aid, but we can't give money if they're suppressing people. You know, we can't you see to it that American aid, when even in regard to Sheikh Jarrah, they say we want to make sure that there's no American aid going to any of those activities. Well, you know that you can't uh, cut the, uh, that thin a slice, and you know that it's only a, a sham because they are against aid to Israel, but they know that it's not popular to say that, and two-thirds, more than two-thirds of Congress has reiterated support, and, and I think it was 90% of the members of the House signed a letter about it. But they, this is all cumulative. and You can't just look at it as a snapshot. you got to see the whole film. That's why every little battle is so important to fight. People need to remember that, especially in the in the court of public opinion. Social media letters to different outlets, etc. It's all so urgent and important. 54th anniversary of the reunification of Jerusalem this coming Monday, everybody. It's our Yom Yerushalayim special coming up. Malcolm, I will wish you an early, happy Yom Yerushalayim. And people, to remember, now that you feel it, you understand what it means to have been separated, not to take it for granted. Yeah. You know, you see how others are trying to take it away. As soon as the doors are open, people should go. We reinforce yep. our presence in Yerushalayim. You, you, you show the world and the, you know, it is a matter of right, it is a matter of history, it's a matter of justice, it's a matter of our future. No and people should not take it for granted. They should be celebrating it, should be teaching our kids about it, talk about the history of Yerushalayim going back to Avram Avinu and till to the current day. Excellent. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful Shabbos. We'll speak next week. Good Shabbos. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Fridays. 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time here at JMNAM.